All right, good morning, Chapel Hill. Thank you very much, Jay, and the rest of the, the band here. Um, this, is, this is a special treat to have them here. Um, for those of you um, who have uh, joined this church sometime within the last 20 years, uh, before that, uh, we had a worship leader here by the name of Jay Messerer, and this is Jay coming back here, and it's just great to have him back. All right, you're going to need your Bibles. We're going to jump right in, so get your Bibles out. Open up your Bible apps. If you do not have a Bible to follow along, as I do some more teaching this morning, just put your hand up, and our ushers are coming around. They have Bibles that you can grab and use to follow along with. And um, if you're receiving one of those Bibles and you currently do not have a Bible of your own, take that Bible with you. Um, You will discover again this morning with us that there's so much there. Um, One reminder to you that this is the last Sunday of the month, which means this is Caring Fund Sunday. Last week, when we looked at the story of Barnabas and the church and how it supported each other, we talked about the Caring Fund. Um, This is an opportunity to put that into action. And so today, on your way out, there will be ushers by the door that will be collecting for the Caring Fund. If you've got something you want to give on the way out, if not, you can go on our website or on our app. And under the giving uh, icon, you can find the option to give to the Caring Fund as well. So um, feel free to take advantage of that. Okay, when you have your Bibles ready, turn to Psalm 99. Psalm 99. Before we get into today's passage from Acts 5 in our series on the first five chapters of the book of Acts... We're going to focus first on a psalm that makes a very necessary statement for us this morning about who God is. And the reason we're doing this is because our passage from Acts today is, once again, a real challenge for many people to accept. This is a difficult story that we're going to look at. It's a difficult one for me to accept. It's one of those passages that I get to and I instantly regret committing to a study of the first five chapters of the book of Acts. Um, I should have stopped at chapter 4. However, um, in spite of the fact that that would have made this last week a whole lot easier for me, I'm, I'm really glad we're doing this. I'm glad we're pushing through this um, because I needed to face today's passage. And so here we go with Psalm 99 to start with. Wayne Gretzky's Psalm. This is a Psalm of Praise. And this time, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation instead of the ESV, which is what we usually use. And I like this translation of the Bible for its readability. It is a, a version that you can read easily. It's very, uh, it's very comfortable to read. And so we're just going to read it together this morning. So I went with this translation. This is Psalm 99, and this is what it says. The Lord is king. Let the nations tremble. He sits on his throne between the cherubim. Let the whole earth quake. The Lord sits in majesty in Jerusalem, exalted above the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Your name is holy. Mighty king, lover of justice, you have established fairness. You have acted with justice and righteousness throughout Israel. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow low before his feet, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also called on his name. They cried to the Lord for help, and he answered them. He spoke to Israel from the pillar of cloud, and they followed the laws and decrees he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but you punished them when they went wrong. 
Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain in Jerusalem, for the Lord our God is holy. Now this morning we're enjoying a time of worship that has us focused on who God is and who we are and his love for us. And we just read about a characteristic of God that we simply have to live our lives by. And that characteristic is that God is holy. And this psalm reminds us of that reality more than once. He's king. He's just. He's established above all the nations. God is righteous. He's forgiving. He is holy. God is set apart. He is far above all of us. There is no one like our God. And these are all reasons why we worship him. If God was just like us, do you think he'd have our devotion? We couldn't worship a God who was anything but holy. God is perfect. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent. My human mind cannot fully grasp who God is. I can't see time like he sees time. I can't grasp how he's able to create like he does. I can't grasp his power. I can't grasp his wisdom. But I accept who he is. And like the psalm says... I tremble when I consider who he is. I'm humbled by who he is. I'm absolutely stunned by the character of God. And I can't for, wait for the day when he comes here to establish his permanent kingdom here with us and live with his children forever. In the meantime, I have to remember something. God is not merely who I want him to be. God is not there to serve my purposes. God is not someone I can choose to take or leave based on what he's doing for me. God's character is not a list of things that I can pick and choose from, rejecting the things that I might not be comfortable with. I choose all of God, not just the parts that I like the most. God is holy he is perfect, his ways are perfect, his character is perfect, his justice is perfect, his wisdom, grace, mercy, love, decisions, actions, forgiveness, correction, direction, words, all of it, perfect. But on the other hand, there's me. I am not perfect. I live as a flawed human being in a flawed world and right now as I stand before my God, my King, my Father, my Judge, my righteous, holy God, I strive and I struggle to accept everything about him. Now how's that for an ominous opening to a sermon? <laughs> it's something that I felt was necessary for me to wrestle with before I wrestle with the story that we're about to read together. So turn now to Acts chapter 5. This is the start of the final chapter in our current series. Just a few more messages before the summer's over and we start something new together in the fall and you're going to hear more about what that's going to be soon. For now, this is Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Acts 5, 1 through 11, and it starts with the word, but this is a comparison. In comparison to Barnabas, and we read about him last week in, in our message. We, we talked about what he did, the gift that he made to the church. 
But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of, interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's not an easy passage, is it? Okay, so two key takeaways from this story. Number one, Peter's a jerk, and number two, God's kind of harsh. I have two very different takeaways for you from this, actually. And we're going to get to those in a few minutes as we go through this. But I think we can agree that this story is a tough one for us to accept. A couple named Ananias and Sapphira messed up and paid a very, very high price for messing up. There's a, a basic Bible study method used a lot for getting more out of the Bible that includes asking the question of what the passage you just read tells you about God. What does this say about God? Tough question to face in this case. What does God striking two people dead tell us about him? Well, we'll work through this a bit. This story comes directly on the heels of the account of Barnabas selling a field that he owned and giving the proceeds to the church for the sake of meeting the needs that existed among the church family. Barnabas did it well. Ananias and Sapphira did not. But we have to consider what really happened to get the most out of this. It's possible that Ananias and Sapphira saw the accolades that Barnabas received from the church for the gesture that he made. It's possible that they wanted that and they wanted the best of both worlds. They wanted the praise and they wanted some of the money. Their motives are, are honestly not important here. What's important is how they went about getting what they wanted. Peter explained some important details to Ananias. He clarified some things. There was never an expectation that Ananias would sell that property. That was not being asked of him. They were not required to. They could have kept it and no one would have had a problem with it. There was also never an expectation that if they sold the property, all of the money from the sale would be given to the church. Ananias and Sapphira did not fail to follow some religious rule about them selling what they own and giving the proceeds to the church. That was not being asked of them. 
in that moment, God's Spirit reveals to Peter what's really happening. And what Peter saw that the Spirit revealed to him was hypocrisy and deceit. Peter pointed out the deception that had taken place. The Holy Spirit gave Peter the ability in that moment to see what they had done. And so Peter challenged what was going on inside them that caused them to do this. Ananias and Sapphira had been tempted by Satan. And they had given in to that temptation. Their greed aligned with Satan's desires for the situation and they chose to attempt to deceive God's spirit by lying about what they were giving. And as a result of that attempt to lie to the spirit, Ananias and then Sapphira lost their lives. They had planned this. They plotted against God possibly to gain the applause of the people and some of the money from the sale, and they agreed to be deceitful to God, testing his character. Now, obviously, God's response was pretty quick and more than a little dramatic. But why would God do this? Was it really necessary to take the lives of these two people? I mean, so much for grace and mercy, right? Listen, our God is holy, There's no questioning that. He is just. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he always does the right thing. And for millennia, his children have wrestled with his reasoning for ending the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. And honestly, it may be that we'll we'll never fully understand his reasoning this side of seeing him face to face. But let's at least consider what was happening at that time. God was in the process of establishing an eternal church that began with Jesus. All of this was new. Jesus had broken down the barrier between the Jews, God's people, and the Gentiles, the rest of the world. God invited all people to be adopted into his family. So a new family was forming, and this expression of God's family was new. All of it was new. In fact, in verse 11 of our passage, we see a word used for the first time to refer to what was happening. It's the word church. This is where it all began. There was a huge shift taking place. The religion of the Jews was being transformed into a Christ-centered, relationship-based expression of God's family. The law that God had given his people to follow had been fulfilled in Jesus. And so being transformed into the likeness of Christ was now central to our experience of God. And that presented a significant risk. Grace, unlike anything the world had ever seen, came with Jesus. And as Paul wrote about many times in his letters, that experience of grace came with the risk of setting aside holiness and living as if you could do whatever you want because grace would just cover it all. And we see that struggle lived out throughout the New Testament. But God's standard of holiness never changed, never diminished in any way, and it never will. God is perfect. He is set apart He is our creator and our only hope. He created us for perfection ourselves. And we anticipate the day 
when perfection will be restored for us. But for now, we all know that we're temporarily stuck in this imperfect place, an imperfect time, and we know that it takes work to navigate all this. In the midst of all this imperfection, holiness is still the goal. We were still created in the image of a holy God. We're still intended to be reflections of that holiness. We don't just drop that holiness perspective, leave it for some unknown time in the distant future and carry on living as if it doesn't matter what we do, we have the grace of Jesus to fall back on. God made it clear from the beginning that he still desired holiness for his people and it was not his plan to let things slide until Jesus returns. So he made some statements to his church about the priority of holiness in its life. And today's passage seems like it's one of those statements. God reminded his people, new and old alike, that he still prioritizes holiness. He prioritizes us, his people, being set apart. They were not going to become a church that looked more like the world than the kingdom of God. Now, well, this event, the instant death of Ananias and Sapphira may catch us off guard as, as something that seems out of character for God. This would not have taken the Jewish Jesus followers in Jerusalem by surprise. It wouldn't have. They were familiar with the stories from the Old Testament, from the history of their people that had been passed on from generation to generation. They learned those stories when they were kids. They grew up with them. And there was something that happened in their story that they would connect to what just happened with Ananias and Sapphira. It's the story of the fall of Jericho. God had led Israel to victory over their enemies who were surrounded by the Israeli army, trapped in the fortress that was Jericho. It's a classic story. The Israelites walked around the city for six days, and on the seventh day, they followed God's instructions again, and on his time, the people shouted, and the walls surrounding Jericho fell flat, and Jericho was defeated by Israel. God gave the army instructions regarding Jericho's possessions. Everything they had, with the exception of the valuable metals like gold and silver, was devoted to destruction. They weren't to take any of it for themselves. The silver and gold were to go to the treasury, and God warned them very seriously that if they were to take something for themselves, there would be consequences. Well, you can guess how this played out. A guy named Achan gave in to temptation, and he took a nice cloak and some silver and gold for himself. And the account of this in Joshua 7 says that he stole and he lied. And God's Spirit led Joshua to discover what had happened. Akan was found out, and Akan lost his life because of what he did. But in this case, there were even bigger consequences. This is what it says in the story. It says, therefore, because of what he did, because of what Akan did, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Israel lost their very next battle, and it was a battle they should have easily won. In fact, they reduced the number of soldiers they were sending to fight this battle. God has never tolerated attempts to deceive him. 
When Ananias and Sapphira were cut down, I'm guessing that the people who witnessed their death there in Jerusalem recalled the story of Jericho and Achan. This was another statement of God's holiness and how he has a standard that is not to be messed with. He is not fond of deception and hypocrisy. Just look at all that Jesus said about those things. It's very clear. So does that mean that the grace of of God that we know so well is really not who he is? Is this contrast between his grace and his holiness a problem? No, it is not. Now, can you imagine if God dealt with every sin of every person this way? Well, there'd be this big empty planet floating around in space. And I should be very relieved that God didn't strike me dead the last time I sinned. But I should also be very aware of the statement made when Ananias and Sapphira fell. In our passage today, there was a response to what happened. It was mentioned twice, once with the passing of Ananias and also again when Sapphira died. The response was fear. The whole church and everyone who heard about this was gripped with fear as they should have been those who saw this happen and those who heard about it experienced a deep reverence for God reverence to the point of trembling before the one who has the ability to judge sin and fear remember means both a sense of terror that's real it's a part of it but also a sense of awe and worship And that's where I need to be. In spite of the fact that our culture frowns on fear because it says something about us being weak, I need to experience this fear when it comes to God. This is one of the two takeaways that I want to leave this passage with. God is holy. And I need to know, I need to be sure that that's on my radar daily. There are things that I think about when it comes to God. I think a lot about his grace, something that I depend on every moment of my life. His grace is something I don't deserve. I certainly haven't earned God's grace. He gives it freely to me. His decision to send Jesus for me, for us, is all grace. I think about God's mercy, speaking of things I don't deserve. What I do deserve, God holds back. I deserve the same fate as Ananias and Sapphira, but here I am, still alive. That's mercy. I think about God's forgiveness. That forgiveness is readily available, and it's a reason why I'm still here and why I am who I am. I am forgiven. I think about God's love, his vast, unconditional, perfect love. I think about God as a father. I think about God as a friend. I think about God as a shepherd. I think about God as my king. But what about the holiness of God? What about the fact that he is perfect? What about the fact that he is all-powerful? What about the fact that he is all-knowing? He sees everything. He is everywhere. God is above all that he's created. We exist because God spoke spoke because he is holy God is the only one 
who can be the judge then of all things. And because he's holy, his judgment is perfect and his standard is very, very high. Too high for you and me to attain. Shouldn't that cause us to fear just a little or a lot? But not fear in such a way that we run from God. Our awareness of God's holiness ought to make us realize that as the one true judge, we need him. In fact, we depend entirely on his holy character for our lives. Is God my friend? Yes, he is. Is God my father? Yes. Is God my rock and my refuge? Yes. And he is holy. He is perfect. And if it wasn't for the incredible act of love that God extended to me through Jesus, I should run in fear. But instead, my awareness of God's holiness draws me to him because I am a child of the holy God. I trust my holy God with the decision about what to do with Ananias and Sapphira. I trust my holy God with the decision about what to do with me. He will always judge righteously because he is holy. So that first takeaway from our story is that we must be constantly aware of God's holiness, always. In light of God's holiness and standing as quite the opposite of his holiness, there's my sin. And I'm not going to talk nearly as long about this one because I'm not comfortable with it. But it's my second takeaway. Awareness of God's holiness is the first one. Awareness of my sin is the second one. Ananias and Sapphira sinned against God. They attempted to deceive the Holy Spirit. They tested the Spirit to see what they could get away with. And where did that sin come from? Why on earth would they think they could get away with lying to God about how much they were giving? Well, Peter actually addresses this in the passage. He asks them why they allowed Satan to fill their hearts. This is one of the toughest realities of this life. We are targets for the enemy who is the temporary ruler of this earthly kingdom. He tempts us. Since Adam and Eve in the garden, he has been tempting human beings. But Ananias and Sapphira carried out their part in this as well. They were tempted, like all of us. There was something outside of them. But they gave in to that temptation. That was on them. Their choice was to attempt to deceive God. Bad choice. I make bad choices too. Here's something that I think contributes to our ongoing sin because we do all sin. But I think we sin more than we should. Often because we have only gone part way in on our understanding and acceptance of God. Just part way. 
when we see only the favorable parts in our eyes of God's character, we only see the part of who God is that makes us feel good about ourselves. And there are lots of those parts. But when we go all in on our knowledge of God, who he is, not merely information about him, we are more likely to go all in on our knowledge about ourselves as well. This passage calls me to be aware of who God is, including his holiness, and aware of who I am, including my sin. The more I trust God's holiness, the more I detest my sin. And believe me, I want to detest my sin. So I need to pay attention to stories like the one that we looked at today as hard as they might be. God is holy. And he has placed his spirit in us to help us see his holiness. And he has placed his spirit in us to help us see our sin. And with both of those things in sight, God draws us into an ever-deepening relationship with him and an ever-deepening desire to overcome our sin and to live to please him and reflect him. Pray that God shows you what he wants you to do with what you've heard today. He can do what he wants to do in your life. He can do it because the Spirit has moved into your life to do in you, to do in me, what only God can do. And it is only by the power of God's Spirit. And thank God he sent us his Spirit to do this work in us. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. And I'm going to ask that you pray with me as they do. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. And in the quietness of your heart and mind, just say, God, you are holy. God, show me your holiness. Show me who you are. Show me who I am. Sovereign Lord, we thank you this morning for who you are. You are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God, this morning we stand on that truth. And with all that we've got, we, we strive to accept who you are and trust you to be that perfect judge. God, you teach us what you'd have us learn from today. Show us your holiness. Show us our response to your holiness. Give us the strength to be aware of and in battle with our sin. Thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the love that you've demonstrated to us through Christ over and over again every day, showing us who you are, showing us that in spite of who we are, you love us unconditionally. We 
praise you for that. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the things you teach us through your word. Help us to be not just hearers, but doers of your word. We are yours. We praise you because you're holy. We do all this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.